Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9.1. And so the commandment was given to Adam at the beginning is now being given to Noah because we're starting all over again with the race of men. That race that began with Adam was wiped out with the exception of one, Noah, and his three sons with their wives. And so now we're starting over again to fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth. Now the commandment is to fill the earth, but in a little while we're going to find out them sort of congregating in one area and then the plains of Shinar. So God there brought the change of languages in order to create the division and cause them to go ahead and fill the earth instead of just trying to populate one area. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every fowl of the air, and upon all that moves upon the earth, and upon all the fish of the seas, and into your hands are they delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you, even as the green vegetables I have given you all things. But the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, you shall not eat. Genesis 9, 2 through 4. Now, prior to the flood, man was a vegetarian. God said unto Adam, all of the green herbs are yours. All of the vegetables are yours for food. The grain, the vegetables, and the nuts, the fruits... They were compromising the food of man prior to the flood. But now, after the flood, God has also given man meat in his diet. And so God declares that man can now eat meat, but there is to be a thorough bleeding of the meat. And of course, this is something that was codified under the law when God spoke to Moses. Interestingly enough, one of the only parts of the law that was commended to the Gentile church is that they keep themselves from things that were strangled. That is, when you strangle an animal, the blood remains in the flesh. And so the way of butchering was to cut it, <clears throat> was to cut it so that the animal would then bleed. The blood would bleed out of it, and then they were to eat it. Basically, this is probably for sanitary reasons, as well as a spiritual connotation, the life of the flesh being in the blood, and that recognition of the importance of blood of, li of, of life, which was all looking forward ultimately to Jesus Christ and his blood that was to be shed, his life that was to be given for our sins. And so the high respect for blood and the equating of blood with life. And so there was to be that thorough bleeding of the animal, animal before it was eaten. Now, no way can we interpret this, nor later on during under the law where God commands them, not to drink the blood. No way can we interpret this as to be a prohibition of blood transfusions. That is just a complete twisting of scripture. But it is tragic. It is a tragic twisting of this scripture because it takes hundreds of lives every year. People in the 80s were shocked because Jimmy Jones took a group of people down to Guyana. And at his instigation, they committed suicide or were murdered. And then the whole world was shocked that people in a religious frenzy and fervor would go to such extremes as to commit mass suicide and murder that way. And yet, because the Jehovah Witnesses refused to have blood transfusions, they are dying, many of them, every year because of a foolish interpretation and an unscriptural interpretation of 
this scripture. I do not see much difference between Guyana and what is happening, except that one was many people at one time, the other is many people over a period of time. Many more people, actually, but over a period of time. But here we find God prohibiting the eating of meat with blood. That is the meat that had been strangled, meat that had been thoroughly bled. And they said it was one of the things that carried over into the church in the book of Acts when they decided what part of the law they were to follow. But notice this is before the law was ever given. This antedates the law. And as I said, it's because God wants to give man the respect for life. And that's the whole idea, the respect for life. So we go on. God said, surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require life of man. Whosoever sheds a man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he him. Genesis 9, 5 through 6. So here at the beginning now of a new civilization, God is establishing capital punishment. If a man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. This is the beginning of human government, and it is the basic foundation upon which human government was to be established. But like it or not, agree with it or not, capital punishment was instituted by God as the basis of human government. Now, the way that man has kept the law certainly is not just, but it doesn't take away from the fact that this is the basic foundation and principle of human government. And you, the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Genesis 9, 7. So the commandment to bring fruit abundantly, to multiply in the earth. And it is interesting that those who are, are crying so loudly against capital punishment are the same ones who endorse so strongly many times abortion. That just doesn't make sense. It's just the opposite of what God said. God said, multiply. God said, if a man takes another man's life or sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so they're just really going against opposite to what God has said. They're crying against capital punishment, and yet they are crying out for abortion. Really, there's just some bad inconsistencies there. And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Genesis 9, 8 through 9. So now God is beginning to establish a covenant with man, and this is the beginning of God's covenant relationship with man. Now God established a covenant later with Abraham that he would be the one through whom he would be the father of the nations, through whom the Messiah would come. Later, God made a covenant with the nation Israel under the law. The covenant always establishes the basis of man's relationship with God. So here is a righteous, holy God, and here is a sinful man. Here is an infinite God and a finite man. How can you ever get the two together? How can a finite, sinful man become one with an infinite, holy God? There has to be some basis by which man's sin is put away in order that he might become one with a righteous, holy God. In the Old Testament, as God established the covenant with the nation Israel, there were the provisions that the sin offerings 
whereby their sins would be covered in an in order that they might have a fellowship with God. But that covenant failed, not because God wasn't faithful, but because man wasn't even faithful to that covenant relationship. And so God said, a new covenant will I make, not written on the tables of stone, but I'll write it on the fleshly tablets of their hearts. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. Now, if the first covenant was adequate and sufficient, there would have never been a need for a new covenant. But even Jeremiah, who lived under the old covenant, saw that it was not and could not work because of man's continued disobedience and unfaithfulness. So God established a new covenant, not predicated upon man's faithful faithfulness, but predicated now upon God's faithfulness. So we have a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it's based upon the faithfulness of God, of putting away my sins, if I'll just simply believe and trust his son. Now, the old covenant, based upon man's faithfulness to keep the law, failed because man didn't keep the law, because it was predicated upon man. Man's faithfulness failed. Thus, the new covenant cannot fail because God cannot fail, and it's predicated upon God's faithfulness, who is faithful and who will keep his promise and will keep his covenant that he has made with us through Jesus Christ. But this is the beginning, really, of the covenant relationships with God and man. And God established this covenant with Noah after he came out from the ark. And God in this covenant declared that neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood, neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of my covenant, the sign, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. For I will set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature and of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And so, the rainbow. Prior to the flood, there had never been a rainbow, because there had never been rain. But now God has set a rainbow, that beautiful rainbow on the clouds, caused by the prisms, the water, raindrops, the sun hitting them. But they are God's covenant to man that the earth will never again be totally destroyed. Now, it isn't a promise that there won't be localized floods, for there are localized floods, but the earth itself will never be destroyed by a great deluge, by a great flood, the entire earth and the all flesh. And that is God's promise. The rainbow is the sign of God's promise that the earth will not again be destroyed by a flood. The earth is to be destroyed, but not by a flood but by a dissolving of the atoms, actually, described by Peter. Now, it is interesting that when John sees the throne of God, 
there is a rainbow about the throne of God or a bow about the throne of God, likened to an emerald. So there in heaven about the throne of God is again a bow, which speaks of God's covenant that he made with man, a reminder of God's covenant. Of course, that one in heaven is probably a reminder of that new covenant that is ours through Jesus Christ, because he will be standing there with God on the basis of this covenant relationship that he established through Jesus. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan, Genesis 9.18. Now that's just kind of thrown in. Canaan wasn't his first son. He was probably his fourth or fifth, but it's just thrown in there because he was actually Ham's youngest son. But he is going to, for some reason or other, come under a curse of Noah. And so it is mentioned the relationship here. Canaan is brought in as Ham's son. Now there are three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth populated. And Noah began to be a husbandman. That is, he planted a vineyard and began to till the soil. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Genesis 9, 19 through 21. Now there are some people who try to excuse Noah and say, well, Prior to the flood, there wasn't any fermentation, and so Noah was sort of taken by surprise. But there's nothing scientifically uh, valid to that at all that would cause us to believe that the conditions were any different prior to the flood as after the flood, or that any of the atmospheric conditions after the flood would have caused a fermentation. That's only speculation. Well, we don't know really for sure. But at any rate, <laughs> Noah got drunk and was lying uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers, Genesis 9.22. Now the word, saw the nakedness of his father, is a little more intense in the Hebrew. Actually, he was gazing upon, and the whole undertone of the thing is that he was in rebellion against his father. And he more or less delighted to see his father in this condition and went out and told his two brothers in such a way as to bring a reproach and disrespect upon his father Noah. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and they went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. Genesis 9.23 The respect for Noah. And Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what the younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, Genesis 9, 24, 25. Now notice he didn't say, Cursed be Ham, but he goes down to his youngest son of Ham and said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Shall he be unto his brethren? And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Genesis 9.25-27 Now why would Noah curse Canaan when it was actually Ham who did it? Much of prophecy, which is, this is a prophecy, is predicated upon observation of human characteristics, and just knowing what the ultimate effect of that kind of a characteristic will bring. You can look at people with certain basic human characteristics, and you can more or less tell what's going to happen in their lives. There are little kids, as they're growing up, you say, man, 
he's going to come to no good in his life. And you can tell by their reactions to authority, by their attitudes and all that, hey, they're going to get in trouble. They have a rebellious attitude towards authority. And you can uh, you can pick out characteristics and by the characteristics that are there, you can more or less make a determination of what their future may hold. And Noah, no doubt, has observed in Canaan many of the characteristics of his father by which he knew that these characteristics would lead to this kind of a future. Now, it's totally unscriptural, totally unfounded, that weird interpretation of the scripture that was held by many people for so long that the curse was that Canaan became black and thus that the black people were a subservient race. Now, this was held by the Mormons until just recently. In Mormonism, a black man could not become a priest in the Mormon church. And it was a common view, a tragic view, an unscriptural view. It was an unscriptural, tragic interpretation. There's no basis for that at all. God has created all of us equal. And the color of my skin has nothing to do with the character and the condition of my heart. Nor does it make me any closer to God or any farther from God. Nor does it categorize me to a certain destiny because my skin is white and I have no hair. That is a tragic interpretation of the scriptures that cause a great deal of horrible attitudes towards a race of people, treating them as servants or as subpar. I'm so grateful that that ridiculous interpretation has finally been filed away, except in the minds of a few rednecks, and that we've come to the beautiful realization that, hey, we are all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond, or free, but Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. Now, because of this attitude, unfortunately, among many black people, there has been an attitude of sort of a backlash against the church, against Jesus Christ, and against Christianity, because it was sort of held in Christian circles, these concepts, for quite a long time. And that is a tragic indeed, because it was holding back then a great number of people from knowing the love of God and the power of God's Spirit and being able to change their lives and give them love, enjoy the peace that God would have for them. And there are many things in history and many things in the history of the church for which I personally am greatly ashamed. I don't try to defend church history. I cannot understand why some people seem to love to hold up the historic church as the criteria for doctrinal truth, as though the historic church was so correct. The historic church is an abomination. Their concepts were an abomination to God. Their practices, their introduction of pagan idolatry, of all these things are a part and a parcel of the historic church. That is why I'm glad, as for myself, I am not identified with the historic church. We can start all over afresh and just seek for the true scripture patterns without having to be bound or restricted or identified with the mistakes and the evils of the historic church. It's neat to have a fresh start. Thus, when I look at the historic church, I blush with shame. I don't try to defend it. It was wrong. It was wrong in its treatment of the Jews. It was wrong in its treatment of those people who had a darker skin color. It was wrong in its introduction of idolatry. It was wrong in the introduction of the Babylonian system of religion. It was wrong in so many areas of the interpretation of the scriptures. 
So why should I reject the glorious, blessed hope of the rapture of the church just because it wasn't part of the historic church teaching? There's a lot of the historic church teaching that I, I reject totally as being false and unscriptural. So the fact that the historic church did not teach the rapture doesn't affect my believing one iota. There's a lot of things that they didn't teach or practice that I do believe. And I believe in such as the gift of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, which is not part of the historic church, if you want to get technical. So to me, these guys who are arguing all the time against the rapture and using as their chief tenant, well, it isn't part of the historic church doctrine. Well, if you want to follow historic church doctrine, that's your problem. I'm glad to take a fresh look, to take a biblical look. I'm glad to come at the scriptures without presupposition. I'm glad to just let the word of God speak to me and speak to my own heart directly and plainly and openly without coming with a presupposition that would prejudice my interpretation. I'm glad for the chance to start over fresh. I'm glad for the new wineskin to hold the new wine of God's spirit that he is seeking to pour out in these days. I'm glad that we're not bound in traditions of the past. God help us to keep from developing our own traditions. God help us in a free flow. God keep us flexible. God keep us open so that the skins don't get hard and tight and rigid. And should the Lord tarry, and I sleep with my father, and the day should come when someone sees a need within the church, and they suggest a new way to reach out and touch lives. And if someone says, well, Scott didn't do it that way, I'll tell you, I'm going to be breathing over your shoulder, haunting you, because we're not trying to establish ways. We're only seeking to follow the movement of God's Spirit in these days. Let's stay flexible. Let's stay open. God is working in a beautiful way now, and we love and we rejoice in it. But it doesn't mean that we will always be following the same patterns of worship that we were and or are presently. But we just want to be open to however, the, how God leads, and we want to remain open to that. So the curse was passed upon Canaan, and Canaan actually was the father of those nations that established the land of Canaan, the Amorites the Jebusites, and so forth. Those who established in the land that became known as the land of Canaan, which later Abraham came to that land and was given that land as God's promise to Abraham and to his seed. So Canaan actually was the father of those people and not the black African races, though the African continent was populated by other descendants of Ham. And so Noah lived after the flood, 350 years, Genesis 9:28, which means that he lived almost to the time of Abraham, and his son Seth did live contemporary. In fact, Seth lived for 75 years after Abraham was born. He lived for 75 years after Abraham had left Haran. So it meant, so it means that he lived just about contemporaneously with Abraham himself. So you see, we're really not too far removed as far as the story goes from Adam. For Adam lived unto the time of Noah's father and so could have passed on the story of creation, the garden and all to Noah's father. Noah himself passing it on to Shem, his son, who lived to the time of Abraham and related the whole thing to Abraham. So you don't have the story too far removed from Abraham. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for establishing a new covenant with us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Continue your work in us, Lord. Keep us faithful to you in every way, and let our hearts burn for your word as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is in your Son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.